0: Well, hey, this is Joey Ferjanek, lead pastor of The Block Church. I want to thank you for joining us today. It's an honor to share this time together with you. We hope this message will touch, impact, and transform your life and help take us one step further on our journey to revive every block. Well, what's up, everybody? Welcome to The Block Church, so glad that you are here. My name is Matt, I am our Northeast Location Pastor. And let me just say, happy Father's Day. All the dads in the room, such a special day. In fact, right now, I wanna take a moment and honor all of our dads. If you're a father, would you please stand in all of our locations, even at home? I wanna pray just a blessing over you. You know, the role of father is such an important role and such a key part of raising kids to be all it is that they need. And so I just want you to feel and be affirmed that the role you play is crucial. It's important, and you've been called by God for this moment. And so I just wanna pray right now over you. Father, thank you for every father in this room. Thank you that you have equipped and called them for this moment. And so Father, I pray that they would model what it means to pursue you first. I pray for blessing over the relationship with every one of their kids, whether they're currently close or not. Father, I pray for healing. I pray for restoration where that's needed. I pray for a confidence, for a clarity. I pray for a blessing over every single dad in this place. May each of us model how you are our loving father. May we represent you in all that we do. I pray for blessing over every single one of them. I pray for encouragement over them. Lord, we thank you for who you are. And I thank you for every dad here. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Come on, let's give it up for those dads. You can go ahead and be seated. And now today, I'm pretty excited. I get to continue our series, Summer Love. We're in week three. If you've missed any of these messages so far, please go back and make sure you watch them because I'm gonna be picking up on a lot of the things that have already been discussed. And since it's Father's Day, what we're gonna talk about is the thing that most fathers dread talking to their kids about. We're gonna have the talk. We're going to have the sex talk. That's right. I know. This is the conversation that so many parents avoid. My, my wife, she remembers being given this talk by her mom. She avoided her mom for weeks after this conversation. <laughs> like straight up, didn't want to get stuck in the car, didn't want to get one-on-one with her. Just she was terrified her mom was going to bring back up this topic matter. Just avoided it. I don't actually remember being given the sex talk by my parents. I mean, I'm sure it happened. Uh, I just probably suppressed that deep into my psyche so that I could still talk to them to this day. What I do remember though is I played football in high school and my poor coaches, they were often given responsibilities that were extracurricular. They were kind of like our our health teacher of sorts. And I remember one time in high school, my coaches invited all of us into a room and my head coach was commissioned with, you need to teach these young men about STDs and about uh, fake safe sex practices. So imagine I'm here with all these other high school guys who are sitting there and my coach gets up and he's like, all right men today we're going to be talking about STDs. Stop laughing. Like it was it was so, it was so awkward. It was just painful. But the truth is, when it comes to the topic of sex, it's often so laced with shame and with perversion, and there's all sorts of different connotations and, and understandings around it. And, and the reality is, as many of us may come from a background where we have warped views of what sex even means and what God views sex as. And so today, I just want to affirm, if God designed us, then he designed sex. So it makes sense for us to have the conversation and understand how did God design sex and and what was his purpose behind it? What I wanna be intentional about here too is, I am not here today to shame anybody. My goal today is not guilt anybody or to beat down anybody for what they're currently engaging in or what they've experienced rather i want us to strip away what our understandings have been and go what does the bible say let's strip away our opinions and go what is god's word as it pertains to this very very important topic and so now it'd be very it'd be impossible for me to to cover all aspects of this but for the sake of clarity i'm going to call our sermon today the talk the talk And so we're gonna talk about three specific things as it pertains to sexuality. First, we're gonna talk about what is God's purpose and design, why within marriage, and how do we live this out? So first off, what is the purpose and context for God's design for sex? In our modern culture, many have been led to believe that Christianity is very sexually repressive and that it's very extreme and that sex is bad when it comes to Christianity. But the truth is, is that's not true at all. It's not true at all. And in fact, you may have come today with a warped view of what the Bible says, but if we look at scripture, scripture actually tells us that sex is good. God designed it. It's a great thing. It's meant to be enjoyed. We see in Genesis 2.25, both were naked and not ashamed. Imagine sex where there's no shame or condemnation present. In Proverbs 5.18-19, it says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. There's really no getting around what that verse is implying. And what's cool is that it tells us that sex is not simply just meant to be practical. It's not just for making kids, but it's meant to be enjoyed. This is how God designed it. In Hebrews 13:4, it says, "'Let marriage be held in honor among all, "'and let the marriage bed be undefiled.'" it highlights the marriage bed as something to be held in high regard, to be undefiled. It sets it up to be an important aspect of marriage. So, if, so that leads to the question, if scripture does hold sex in such a high regard, why does it seem so often at odds with the mainstream and at odds with our culture? Well, there's a very simple reason. The, this is because scripture defines sex that it was designed to be in covenant, whereas culture describes sex as transactional. Scripture designed sex to be within covenant, whereas culture tells us that sex was designed to be transactional. So let's talk about that. What does transactional mean? I stole this example from Tim Keller. And in fact, if when you get a chance, go back and listen to his sermon called Love and Lust. It's fantastic. But he highlights this really well. He compares it to like a business transaction. When you are a, in a business, you have a relationship with a vendor and you stay in relationship with that vendor so long as the vendor is providing the service to your satisfaction. And the relationship is fine. But as soon as you're displeased with that vendor, you start looking for other options. You start looking for other avenues to meet the need that you have to meet and get the service that you're wanting. This is often how we view sex culturally. It is an inward-focused need that we have that we seek to fulfill by whatever avenue we deem most appropriate. And this is why it can be so problematic in relationships because I'm in relationship with you so long as you meet this need that I have, but I'm always entertaining the idea of as soon as it's not there anymore, I have another option I'm gonna pursue because the basis of this need is what I get out of it. This is how culture describes it. And honestly, culturally speaking, if we look, it's very easy to assume, man, we love sex in our culture. My wife and I, we use this tool called, uh, uh, what is it called, Common Sense Media. It's an online platform that helps filter out what is explicit content that's gonna be in TV shows or movies. So we look these things up prior to watching a show or watching a movie to see if there's gonna be explicit content that we don't wanna consume. And let me tell you, it's getting increasingly difficult to find a new show or a new movie that isn't filled with all sorts of sexually explicit material. It's all over the place. And just regular shows and movies, it's everywhere. And so it'd be very easy to assume, man, our culture loves sex because it's all over the place. It's marketed like crazy, It's literally sold in books. It's Pornography is the definition of selling sex in a singular, individually consuming manner so that yourself is satisfied. Our culture has made it into a commodity. In relationships, we use it as a token. The way that we get more serious in our relationships is I have to be sexually active in order to keep them there. It's used as an exchange of goods. It's like, you'll stay with me so long as I exchange my body with you. We've used it as a transactional item. And... It's sprinkled throughout everything. And if I honestly, objectively look at this, I think, what a low view of sex. It's sprinkled throughout everything. It's used as an exchange of goods. That's actually a low view of sex. Let's compare that to what scripture says. C.S. Lewis actually says it really, really well in his book, Mere Christianity. It says, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. For that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And the Christians believe that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact, just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and a key are one mechanism, or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The of the human machine was telling us that it's two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union, which was intended to go along. And with it, and make the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out. Isn't that incredible? He articulates it so well. Biblical sex is defined as two becoming one. It's not an individual getting what they want out of it, but two people coming together and becoming one, both physically and spiritually. It's meant to be a selfless act of complete trust and vulnerability between two spouses. Imagine, imagine a sex life where there's no comparison, where there's no shame, where there's no guilt, where you're not manipulated through it, where you're not being forced upon, where there's actual joy, there's trust, there's safety, there's excitement, there's love present. Imagine a sex life where there is joy and trust between the spouses. This is how God designed and intended sex to be. And there's a reason because it's two serving each other, caring for each other. It's not an individual thing, but rather two becoming one. Do we think it's coincidence that in our increasingly sexualized culture, it's also the most isolated and lonely our culture has ever been? It's because we've divorced sexual activity from sexual intimacy. And again, I wanna be clear. My goal today is not to beat down everybody for whatever it is that you may have experienced, but to help illuminate, look at how much more fulfilling God's design is in his context rather than what our culture has tried to feed us as to what healthy sexuality is. A New York Times study, which, again, is not a Christian platform, is a very secular one, but this New York Times study said that nearly half of 20-somethings agreed with the statement, you would only marry someone if he or she lived together with you first so that you could find out whether or not you actually get along. And two-thirds said that they believed that moving in together before marriage was was a good way to avoid divorce. But that belief is contradicted by experience. Couples who cohabitate before marriage and especially before an engagement or an otherwise clear commitment tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than those who do not. This is the New York Times reporting this, saying that when we engage in marital things outside of marriage, we're actually diluting it and we end up getting stuck. The study goes on to tell us that couples often will get stuck in a relationship that they would have otherwise left because they've given so much of themselves to this individual. So it's hard to walk away because you've invested so much of yourself with no commitment that they stay in it, hoping that it'll eventually pay off. Do you see how our cultural understanding of sexuality actually enslaves us and is a watered down version of what God intended and how God designed it? When we do anything within the context of how God designed it, there's freedom, there's joy, there's fulfillment because he designed it for us. It's a beautiful thing, but when we go with culture and we separate it from marriage, we get a watered down, less fulfilling and more fleeting version of what God designed. This is why it was designed to be within the context of covenant relationship. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about why within marriage my senior year of high school, I remember I had senioritis so badly. I was ready to get out. I I just, I hated everybody. I hated the town. That's that's why I left Texas, because I was like, I'm going to get away from everyone here. And so imagine me, my senior year, I was pretty unpleasant. I mean, like, I was really just like, I'm going to grit my teeth, do what I got to do to graduate. In my mind, graduation day fixed all my problems. I could run away, and I would be done. I could not wait to graduate. In fact, I remember one time me and this kid were beefing and like an altercation happened. I remember opting not to pursue it further to fight this kid. He was like, nah, man, I'm not going to let anything prevent me from walking across that stage and leaving town. In my mind, graduation fixed everything. But the truth is, is that when graduation came, It came with a whole new set of problems, a whole new set of things. I suddenly needed a job. I couldn't live with my parents anymore. I had to figure out college, which I thought I knew in theory until all the paperwork starts coming in and the expectations start showing and it created a whole new season. Now, as great as graduation was, it wasn't an arrival place, but rather the beginning of a new journey. And the thing is, marriage is that way too. Many of us think marriage will be the moment where everything is perfect now because we've gotten married or perhaps we've been led to believe that. And I just wanna be clear right now, getting married does not immediately mean great sex life. Simply getting married does not immediately mean great sex life. However, it is a very key component which we're gonna talk about here. I heard the story of a young woman who her whole life She was told, abstain from sex, abstain from sex. So she did, her whole life. And when she did get married and her wedding night came, she thought it was gonna be the epitome of her human experience, but instead she found herself afterwards hiding in the bathroom crying because she felt shame there's another couple I heard about where they came from very different sexual pasts. She had been sexually abused and so, when it came to sexuality, she always felt degraded, she always felt attacked. Uh, And where he had a very colorful sexual past because he had equated sexual activity with care. So he didn't believe care existed outside of sex. So imagine these two coming together and what it ended up creating were two very sexually frustrated and isolated individuals who were married. So we need to understand that we have to fully grasp what sex within marriage looks like and not romanticize the institution of marriage as fixing all of our problems. How was it meant to function within marriage? Because what I wanna be clear is, I don't wanna oversimplify what can be a complex issue. There's many here that have very difficult pasts. or many here that have a lot of trauma as it relates to sex, and many here may be married and frustrated right now. So again, Let's go, what does the Bible say and how is this supposed to function within marriage? The two key ingredients are commitment and intimacy. Commitment and intimacy. Jesus says this in Matthew 19, "'Haven't you read the scriptures?' Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. He said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one, since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. The two became one in a covenant commitment with one another. The sense of there is no backing out, you are now one unit, there is no separating this. And when we engage in sex within covenant, it is an act of giving and self-commitment to the other person. Think about this, when you get physically naked, you are bearing all to see. You're showing all, saying, hey, all my faults, all my everything is yours to see and yours to have, and I'm here to serve you. I don't know about you, but I can wear certain outfits that make me look skinnier than I am. I I know how to hide my crevices, (laughs) but when you remove all, there is no hiding. There is no hiding. This is what marriage is supposed to be. It's fully bearing all to one another. So sex is a physical symbol of the commitment that you're doing with the entirety of your life. It's a commitment of all of who you are, not just the physical aspect, but who you are spiritually, who you are emotionally as well, without the threat of leaving. It creates a safety because we know each other at all. Our worst. We seek to understand one another. If that safety doesn't exist, if the spiritual intimacy and the emotional intimacy does not exist and the commitment is not there, we will leave feeling very sexually frustrated. Paul says this in Ephesians 5:22. He says, For wives, This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church, and as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. He did this to present to her, her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word." Hearing that verse in our modern culture, especially when we hear the phrase, wives submit to your husbands, I know it can hit our ear funny, but we have to understand when we're reading this text is that Paul is not writing to a modern audience. He is writing to a very different one. He was not writing to the US. In fact, knowing that makes what he said to the husbands that much more game-changing. For him to tell men to love their wives as they love their bodies in a time where women were often regarded to as property This would have been mind blowing to the people of that time because in this, he makes them equals and tells them one each must serve each other. Each must seek out to serve each other. And what he's pointing out and how he tells wives to respect and husbands to love is he's telling them to act contrary to their immediate nature. Dr. Emerson Igrich's book, Love and Respect, really talks about the differences in how men and and women receive love from one another. And a a quote from that book is, he says, wives are made to love, want to love and expect love. Husbands are made to be respected, want respect and and expect respect. So with that understanding, Paul is telling husbands and wives, act contrary to your nature to serve your spouse. Husbands, even though you're programmed through the lens of respect and wanting respect and honor, Go the opposite of that and love your wife because that's her need and that's your job to fulfill. Make her feel loved, make her feel cherished. Wives, respect and honor your husband. Even though you're programmed to love and to receive love, honor and respect your husbands. Notice what it also doesn't say. It doesn't say husbands love your wives when you feel respected. It doesn't say, wives, respect your husband when you feel loved. It's a command given with no ultimatum. We are called to love and serve our spouse, act contrary to who we are, to show love to our significant other. It's important. But that raises a new question, because now you have to understand, how does my husband feel honored and respected? How does my wife feel loved? It means we have to actually seek to understand one another. If you don't know your wife's trauma, if you don't know your spouse's past, if you don't know these things, and if you don't know their love language, you're going to be frustrated as you try to do this. This is why marriage is not an arrival place, but the beginning of a journey together. You pursue one another. Come to understand, what makes my wife feel loved? What makes my husband feel honored? How can I do these things to show that love? And I'm telling you, when you do this, it builds trust because the other sees you care about them with no ulterior motive, and it creates a safe place where emotional intimacy can be fostered. Spiritual intimacy can be fostered and this fear fuels physical intimacy. If this is absent, we will be tempted to treat sex transactionally within our marriage. I can't tell you the number of couples that I've spoken to that get into a standoff with one another saying, no, I'll adjust when they adjust or I'll serve them when they serve me. The longer that exists, the wider the chasm will be between you. This is why it's been imparted onto each of us to own our part and serve our spouses. God designed it this way. So practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we commit to having sex with only our spouse for our whole life? Well, I just wanna echo what I've said multiple times now. My goal today is not to beat down anybody, but to illuminate what can be, illuminate how God designed. And when we pursue this as the model, that's where joy and fulfillment can be. And so if this is how God has designed it, the first thing that we have to do is we need to starve sinful appetites. We've got to starve sinful appetites. First Corinthians says this, it says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. Colossians 3, 5 goes even further and says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. This means we have to identify what in our lives are fueling desires outside of God's design. If we are in a dating relationship and we find ourselves getting too physical too often, well, then let's put a boundary in place. Let's say, hey, past this time of night, we will not just be one-on-one. Let's join a block group with other people that are pursuing purity, that can hold you accountable. Have people in your life. If you're struggling with viewing inappropriate things online, like pornography, put an accountability browser in place. As somebody who wrestled with that for years, there's freedom when we take the steps when we're in sober mind to cut off our access to how the enemy would try to drag us away. Scripture doesn't tell us to man up and face temptation. It says run from temptation. So whatever's in our life that's drawing us away from him, cut it out, put something in place. And here's the beauty. The church is the best place to experience freedom and healing because this is a safe place. Here, there are people who want to hold your arms up, want to encourage you, want to give you resources, but we have to put things in place while we're sober of mind to prevent us from falling into sin. If you're married and you're finding that you have no sexual fulfillment in your marriage and you're not communicating in this frustration, we have marriage coaches. Let's talk about it. Let's shine light where there's darkness and let's talk through and come up with solutions. We're here to help. There is hope, there is healing available, but we have to own our part and cut off and remove the things that are fueling a desire outside of God's intent. The second thing that we need to do is that when we're married, we need to have sex frequently with purpose in First Corinthians seven, it says, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. What we need to understand is that in that verse, it tells us to serve one another once again, but also understand that we need to be each other's sole source. If you are married, your spouse is meant to be your sole source, which means you have to know each other's needs. We have to seek to understand like, what are your needs? What are your expectations in this? Otherwise there will be frustration and disappointment. And here's the thing too. It's amazing how when you get married, your sexual life is so easy to neglect. You get busy, life's happening, things go on, and next thing you know, you've created a chasm in your relationship that then you are tempted to seek to fulfill in other avenues. I've never met anybody that told me, I'm planning to have an affair after I get married. It's never a planned thing. It comes from neglect. It comes from small, bad decisions, and this is an avenue the enemy loves to wreak havoc in marriages, pursue intimacy with one another, have expectations. And here's some, just some tips for you, guys. Tailor your approach tailor your approach to your wife. Just stripping down and walking into the room isn't gonna do it. Uh, Let me tell you, it's not gonna translate. You're just gonna make her mad. (laughs) Here's a pro tip. You know when my wife thinks I'm the sexiest? Is when I'm cleaning those counters. When I put those dishes in that cabinet, she didn't even ask me. Man, I can be in a parka or dressed like one of the dang wiggles and she'll be like, that's my man right there. Learn your spouse's love language. Tailor your approach. Make sure that she feels loved and cherished. Create a safe, trusting environment. Ladies, make a move, any move. I mean, he's probably down. Like, (laughs) make a move, but understand that he cannot reach your mind. So if there's something in, your marriage that you find off-putting. There's something that he's doing that takes away a sense of trust or safety or is repulsing you in whatever way. You've gotta communicate that. You've gotta be clear on your expectations. As much as you want, he will not be able to read your mind. This July, i have been married for 10 years. I still don't know what my wife's thinking. (laughs) I still don't know. I still need her to tell me. We have to communicate because this is a spot in our lives where the enemy loves to wreak havoc. And we remove it by shining light and being transparent and understanding that our spouse is our sole source. This is how God designed it because it's not just about what I get, but how can I serve you and meet your needs? It is a selfless component of our marriage. And the last thing is we have to determine the authority that sex plays in our life. Much of what I'm saying, I understand, can be very difficult to hear. It is so contrary to our nature and so contrary to our our culture. But what we need to understand is that if sex is the most important thing to us, married or not, we are bound to be disappointed. Because if we call ourselves Christ followers, if we've given our life to Him, anything that we put on the throne of our life has become an idol and will let us down because we're seeking something to fulfill us that only Jesus can fulfill. When we say, God, I've given you my whole life except for this part, I think you understand. This part's okay, right? We have made that God. We've made that in synonymous with Him. We've given it just as much authority. And when we do that, we are bound to be disappointed because only God can fulfill the need that we have for love, for that joy. He's the designed us from the beginning, and so we have to surrender ourselves to him. Many of us may be struggling with the idea of like, how can I not cohabitate or sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend because they're wrestling with the fear of being left alone if you're wrestling with the fear of, maybe they won't love me anymore, I'll be alone. Maybe you're having a hard time breaking free of the sexual addiction because that would mean exposing light on something in your life that you feel shame about or something that you've been hiding. Or maybe you can't imagine giving up your sexual preferences because that would mean giving somebody else authority over our life. But guys, what we have to understand is that surrendering our preference, surrendering our, Yes, surrendering our preference is the essence of being a Christ follower. It's the essence because we're saying, God, I trust you with my life. I trust you above my own rationale. I trust you above my understanding. And it's by his strength that we're renewed. It's by his strength that we're fulfilled. It's by his love that we're redeemed. And by his power, we're forgiven and given the strength to face any temptation, to face any obstacle. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight he will make your paths straight when we surrender and trust him the results are not just on us to shape our life or to change our mindset he is faithful to do that he is faithful Romans 12 2 says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. He is faithful to restore and redeem what the world has perverted, what the world has distorted, God designed and created. And when we use it within his context, that's where the joy exists. But we have to stop and say, are there parts of my life that I'm hanging on to that I'm not releasing control? Because if that is the case, it's enslaving us and we're getting a watered down version of what God's designed. But what I know, is that there is freedom in Jesus, that there is hope in Jesus, there is healing and restoration in Jesus. Will you stand all over this place? Even at home, stay with me. This is a special moment. With your head bowed and eye closed, I wanna ask you, have you surrendered yourself to Jesus? The beautiful thing about our Savior is He's not afraid of our past. He's not afraid of our present. He's not afraid of your doubts or any of those things. He simply says, come to me as you are are, and he is faithful to forgive. He's faithful to restore. And so if you're in this place today and you have not given your life to him, now is the time. Or maybe you wandered away and you know that right now it's time to come back home and give your life to him. Now is your moment. If that's you, I want you to wave your hand at me right now. Wave at me. If you're saying, yes, I want to give my life to Jesus. In the chat, put a hand emoji. In the chat, let us know that you're making this decision. God's calling you home. If you're making that decision, I want you to repeat this prayer after me. It's not magical. It's the beginning of a journey with God. Say, Dear God, Father, I need you. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe you died and that you rose again. So today I give you my life. I give you my past. I give you my mistakes. I give you my strengths. I give you my future. Make me brand new. I am yours all the days of my life. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you made that decision, we believe heaven is your destiny. God calls you family, and while life may not get easier, it will get better. Come on, let's celebrate those that just made that decision. Thanks so much for joining us today. I especially want to thank those of you who give generously to help us revive every block. If you enjoyed this message, you can subscribe, share it with your friends, screenshot it, and post your social stories, and tag us at the Block Church. We'd love to hear from you and how you found this encouraging and inspiring. Thanks again, and God bless you.